are continuing our study of the book of Philippians, and last week we um, went from verse uh, 19 down to verse uh, 21 or so, I believe. All right, we've been moving along chapter 1 in Philippians, and we, we talked about how that this chapter, um, Paul, the main thing that Paul stresses is you find joy in life by having the same mind. And he really hadn't talked about a lot of that, but he's going to start really emphasizing that as he gets toward the end of this particular chapter. But after making his customary greetings, uh, he starts talking to the church at Philippi and talks about how, because of their partnership, um, they had a very close relationship. He, they, of course, uh, gave money to him, uh, took care of him. Even now, they sent money to him evidently there at, at Rome, while he's in prison, they even sent a man to help him by the name of Epaphroditus, and he that causes him to long to be with the church at Philippi. Uh, if he gets out of prison, there's no other place he'd rather be. Uh, he loves them so much in the same way that, that Christ loves. He loves them from the very bottom of his heart. And, um, and then he goes on and proceeds to tell them about uh, his prayer for them, how that they will grow in love and knowledge and uh, being able to discern and, and um, how that uh, he wants these things for them. And then we started a section, um, well, I guess it's been two weeks now. We started two weeks ago, a section where uh, he basically is going to answer a question that is asked of him, though it's not specifically mentioned in the text, but obviously the way he's answering, he's, he's answering a question they asked when Epaphroditus got there, and that is, well, how are you doing, Paul? What is it like to be in prison? You know, we're, we're concerned about you. How are you dealing with your situation? And, of course, uh, he begins answering there in uh, verse 12, and he wants them to understand that he's doing well, and the reason why he's doing well is because the gospel is being spread. And uh, even though he's in bonds, uh, that's not stopping the, the, the Bible being taught and that the gospel's being spread. And that makes him think, of course, in verses 14, um, uh, uh, in verse 14, how that this is causing other brethren to be more confident in spreading the gospel. And he makes kind of a parenthetical statement how that there are some who preach the gospel who are jealous of him and they've been saying bad things about him, but he really doesn't care because as long as the gospel's being preached, that's all he cares about. And um, then he goes on and talks about how that you know, with his upcoming trial, if you read between the lines, it, it doesn't matter uh, whether he lives or dies. He knows that God's going, or Christ is going to be magnified uh, by him. And so uh, we get to verse 21, where we were coming to... Uh, uh, in our text where we stopped last week, but he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And um, we talked about how that if he lived, you know, he still would be living with Christ and Christ is his everything. And we spent some time talking about um, that if he died, that'd be his gain because he'd get to go to heaven. And um, even talked about, we got to verse 22, how that he was not quite sure what he wanted uh, to do. And um, how he was kind of, as verse 23 says, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I believe, Michael, is that about where we got? Okay, yeah, I think we talked about 22 because I remember I couldn't remember the story about uh, 
people, the preacher asking the people if they wanted to go to heaven, and if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand, or you know, starting to come back to me, then you raise your hand, and there was one guy in the group that didn't raise his hand, and he said, why didn't you raise your hand? He says, well, I thought you were getting a group to go now, and we talked about how that, uh, you know, we want to... Uh, we want to go to heaven, but some of us don't want to go to heaven right now. I believe that's what we finished on last uh, time we had class. And um, Paul wanted to go to heaven right now. In fact, he was struggling with what would be the best decision. In fact, um, verse 23, after he says, For I'm a straight betwixt the two, um, basically I'm, I'm between a rock and a hard place, he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, that word depart in the Greek is an interesting word, and, and it helps us to appreciate even the fact of what it means to leave this earth and, and, and go live with Christ. Uh, this word depart in the Greek was used by soldiers to um, make the command that it's time to tear down camp and go home. Uh, literally behind that idea is you can picture in your mind soldiers who uh, are um, pulling up tent stakes, wrapping up cords, loading stuff into the wagon because they're going home. And so Paul uses that word, and it's almost like here is a soldier of the Lord, and the battle's over, and I'm going to finally get to go home. And that's just, to me, is a very beautiful picture uh, of, of what Paul is describing here. But also what's interesting, this word was used in different ways in the Greek, and that's the magic of Greek. They, they had this... this the Greek language is very picturesque. In fact, I have a several volume book uh, in my library called Word Pictures of the New Testament, and it's based on the pictures that um, Greek words paint. But this word was also used by sailors to emphasize the fact that we're in a foreign port and it's time to strike the sails and go home. Um, and once again, you get a mental image of... of, of of Paul dying, even if he was executed, and he's climbing aboard the Lord's ship, and he's, he's sailing toward eternity. Uh, there's also uh, the idea that sometimes farmers would use this word, and here you can tell where it changes a little bit and how the Greek works, that, that um, they would use this word to symbolize the taking off of a yoke off of an oxen and allowed to be done with their work of the day and go to the stable or the barn. And once again, you get a picture in your mind that um, Paul had carried the burdens of this world on his shoulder, but if he was to die, that yoke would be removed and he would get the rest that he so desperately wanted. And, um, you know, just, just a very, very neat word that we have here. So you can see why he would have a desire uh, to depart. He's ready to... Um, Get that burden off his back. He's ready to quit fighting. He's ready to go home. Uh, he's ready to uh, sail to a better port, if you will. And so, like I said, um, it's a very beautiful word. But tell me the significance uh, where he says to be with Christ. I thought when we died, we were just dead. There are some people who even teach that when we die, that our soul goes to sleep. But this verse, if you look at it, what does it say happens when Paul dies? He's going to be with Christ. Now, what confuses people is they read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and they talk about how that, um, you know, our bodies will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That which is corruptible will put on incorruptible. That which is mortal will put on immortality. 
But they're talk, that's talking about the body. We don't have a body after we die until the Lord returns. And when the Lord returns, our souls will be re- reunited with the body. And you know, First Thessalonians says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, that's the, the dead is talking about their bodies. But as Glenn brought out in a class we had on Sunday morning uh, not too long ago, you know, Luke chapter 16 teaches the fact that there's a place that's called the Hadean realm. And a person, once they die, uh, the rich man went, went to Hades and the Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Uh, you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he was talking to the thief on the cross. What did he say? He says, the thief says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, yeah, but tell you what, you're going to die here and you're going to sleep until I return. And then once I return, then, then I'll take you to my kingdom. No, what did he say? He says, this day, this day you will be with me in paradise. And uh, the very idea is that, of course, Jesus went to the Hadean realm too when he died, and then he was resurrected from the dead, and he was reunited with his physical body, if you will, and, uh, of course, um, lives forevermore. And um, I just bring that up because there are some who teach that particular uh, idea that uh, there's such a thing as soul sleeping. And I know um, every now and then you'll have somebody come to your door that believes such a thing, but the Bible the Bible just really doesn't teach that. Um, I like what he says here at the last part of verse 23. King James Version has, which is far better. Does anybody have anything different that helps emphasize what he felt about this? Last four words of verse 23. Better by far? Well, that makes sense. Look who you're married to. Um, <laughs> literally in the Greek, it's very, very much better. That kind of gives you an idea that, that Paul knew that to, to be with Christ was the very best thing. It's very much better than anything is the idea. And so um, uh, he really wanted to go to heaven. So look at it this way. If you look at these verses and you start and you make a list, Paul's trying to make a decision. He's trying to decide what's just better for me to stay here on this earth or go ahead and be with Christ. Uh, let's make a list. In one column, we'll put um, staying here, and the other, we'll put life, and we'll put death. Just do it that way and draw a line down the middle. And we start looking at these verses, and if he, as verse um, 21 says, if he lives, what does that mean? Verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. So he put that under the first column, life. He understands when he's here on this earth that Christ is always going to be him. And Christ was the source of his life. Christ was the motivation of his life. He loved being in Christ. And so this life, he would still have Christ. And so that goes on that column. Well, you look at the rest of the verse, though, and in the column to die, what would you put? It's not hard, people. You think, I think I'm trying to, you think I'm trying to trick you, but I'm not. Huh? Gain. He understands that if he dies, he would gain heaven. So he's got Christ here if he lives here, and then he's got um, gain if he dies. If he go ahead and cut off his head, he's got that. All right, let's add another column. Uh, let me add the, some more to the column. Under He says, but if I live in the flesh, what does he get to add in this column? Fruit of his labors. In other words, think about how what Paul is thinking about. I'm going to keep working, and there's going to be more fruit. 
If he keeps working and there's more fruit, what does that mean? More Christians. And so he puts that over in the, in, in the, the life column, the living column. If I don't die, if I get proved not guilty and get to live longer, well, that's a, that's a plus. Paul loved the lost. Paul wanted as anybody and everybody to go to heaven. And we've already talked about how unselfish he was, that even when people were making fun of him and preachers were saying bad things about him, that didn't bother him as long as they kept preaching the gospel. Why? Because he loved the lost so much. So this, to him, is a great thing to put in his column, the fruit of my labor. And, um, of course, he goes on how that this is a struggle in his mind. But um, he goes on in verse 23, and he says, For I'm a straight betwixt the two, having a desire to depart. That goes under the die column. And what would go under there? Be with the Lord. Okay? Depart and be with Christ. Be with the Lord. All right, so now we've got a tie. We've got Christ and fruit of his labors on one side, and we've got uh, the gain that he would get and being with the Lord. Okay? Well, something's got to break the tie because now that's, this is why he is stuck in between. He's a straight betwixt the two. Literally, as we talked about, it's like there's two stone walls beside him. He can't go one way or the other. He's, all he can do is just look in one direction ahead. But something's got to be decided. What's going to break the tie? Well, look at verse 24. He says, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, who's the you? Philippians. All right, so now we've got live or life in that column. Now you have to write the Philippians name down there. And guess what? That breaks the tie. And here's the amazing thing that suddenly happens in the text. In fact, there are some commentators who believe that Paul received some type of special revelation at this time because his whole attitude starts to change. Or it may be he just waited like we did. He added the columns up and he decided that there's more in this column than there was in that column. Don't know, but notice what he says now. Notice how his whole tone changes, beginning at verse 25. Remember, he was talking before about whether he lived or died. Lord was going to be magnified. He couldn't decide what he wanted to do, either live or die. And we already talked about all the different possibilities of living and dying. But all of a sudden, it seems like when he got to the end of this list, Verse 25, and having this confidence, I know what changed. Well, we don't know what changed, but something changed between verse 24 and 25. It may be after he added everything up, he realized that it was more needful for him to be here on this earth. Or maybe, as some commentators said, he had something out of special revelation from God how this trial was going to turn out this time. But notice this whole, this whole, he went from not knowing what to do, not knowing what was going to happen, to saying, this is my confidence. I know this. Yes, Julie. Well, maybe gave him a choice, and he finally decided to make his choice. Like I said, after he weighed the two columns, you know. Oftentimes when we're trying to decide something in our household, we'll make a list. What's, what's the pros and cons, okay? The pros would be the football player, and the cons would be the prisoners. That's what we always say. <laughs> it's a long story. Anyway, but notice what he says. And having this confidence, I know... I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, 
that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Something changed. Now he went from not knowing what to do, not knowing whether it's better to live or to die, but now he's got confidence not only is he not going to be put to death, but he's going to see them again. And he's not just wishful thinking here. He uses the word confidence, and he uses the word no, and he uses the word I shall. So something really changed. And he understood once again in his unselfishness that uh, the church at Philippi needed him. And the thing I love about Paul's writings, especially this book, everything builds on everything. He started off talking about they were partners. He talked about how much he loved them. He talked about how if there's any other place I could be, I would want to be with you. And then that caused him to answer the question about his, uh, how he was doing. But now he's come back full circle again. Where does he want to be? He wants to be with them. And now he's confident after he's worked all this stuff through his mind about living and dying, about staying or going, about what's going to happen with him. Now he's confident of the fact that the place he wants to be is with them. And it shows you the great love that he had for this uh, particular congregation. Any questions or comments? I rambled there for a while. Yes, Roger. Now, all we can do is go by tradition because there's no historical records. Tradition tells us that he was uh, released by Caesar at this time. And he was released. Just tradition from church, early church history. Just you know, people who wrote in the church early, and we don't know, there's no verification of it. But they think he was released by Caesar, and he went into the regions of Spain and evangelized the areas of Spain. And then he was arrested again, and this time he was in prison, he was beheaded. That's what the tradition tells us. You know, it's not any historical records or writings or anything, but, you know, um, I guess you say early church fathers wrote that. You know, Smitty, you got anything else to add about, you know anything more about that? Oh. Absolutely. So to answer your question, Roger, we just don't know, uh, but we believe that's what happened. Uh, that's the only evidence we have. Yes, thank you. And think about Paul, he was a go-getter, and he was a man who worked hard. He was always laboring, but you could tell that he was a preacher because he liked to play golf. And you'll appreciate this, and Michael, you'll appreciate that. Some of you others who like to play golf. Not only did he play golf, he played it well. He was a good golfer. Because what does he tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He says, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. There's been a lot of times I've finished a course, I haven't kept the faith. I'm telling you. <laughs> it takes a lot. But anyway... But uh, that's happened to pop in my head when you started talking about him being a procrastinator because it gives back to that pro thing, you know. He's professional. Yeah, you got your pros and your cons. Yep. Okay. Are right, any other comments above, above and beyond my silliness? See, Karen, Karen has a theory. She says the reason why I, on Wednesday nights crack jokes occasionally, she says people on Wednesday night are tired, and this is how you wake them back up again. You, you put a little... Put a little humor in there and it gets them thinking again, even if they're off in Never Never Land when it comes to the text, they focus back in again. All right, <clears throat> verse 27. After he brings up the fact that he is going to uh, see them again, but obviously it's going to be a while till he sees them again. So he says, 
Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, like I said, Paul piggybacks on everything, so he's saying, well, I'm going to come see you. But until I get to come see you, whether I'm there or I'm not there, there's something I'm expecting of you. And what he's expecting of them, King James doesn't do that good a job because it uses some archaic language. So somebody with the NIV or something like that read it for me. Because we don't use the word conversation the same way that King James used them. All right. Conduct yourselves. Um, literally, the word in the Greek is, is the word we get our word politics from. And it means citizenship. So I don't know if anybody has that in their margin or whatnot, but he's saying you need to make sure until I get there, whether I'm there or not, that you walk as a citizen would walk. And he's talking about, of course, the, the citizenship that we have in heaven. But as the uh, King James has becometh, but a better translation is what Karen read for us, is the word worthy. Um, he says, understand that you need to walk worthy. Now, what does it mean, worthy? What does worthy mean? All right, deserving. Um, do we, um, can we therefore then earn our salvation? Do, can we walk in such a way to deserve what's saying here? Obviously not. Uh, so this has to be talking about not perfection, but talking about direction. But there's even something greater going on here in the Greek. It's the idea, worthy means something that has worth. And if something has worth, that means it has value. So what he's saying is you need to walk as a citizen of the kingdom that you're a part of, understanding the value of your salvation. The thing that drives people to be the very best Christians is not a matter of trying to keep commandments, which is something that needs to be done. It's not checking off checklists or saying, I'm going to do this because it's my duty to do so, though there's times that may be the case. But it's the understanding and appreciating the fact of the value of what you have. It's the value of it. You've got forgiveness of sins. Uh, if there's ever a reason to come and worship God, the fact that he loved you enough and his grace was so wonderful that he got rid of your sins, that should make you want to shout out and be everything you can be. And, and that's the idea here. He's saying, uh, make sure you understand and appreciate the value that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that you were saved, what a valuable thing that is. But here's the thing that, that is interesting. You think if he's talking about you need to walk the walk, if you're going to talk the talk, that he'd spend some time dealing with well, you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you, do, you need to make sure you do this and, and all this kind of thing. But he centers in, some, centers in on something that, that he thinks is so important for the church at Philippi and for that matter is so important for every church. Notice what he says after he says that. He says, if I'm there or I'm not there, I want to hear of your affairs. And he wants to hear about what's going on there at the church and this is what he wants to hear about that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
He says you need to stand fast in one spirit. Now, the spirit there, um, I was trying to think if there was any translations who have it capitalized. I can't think of it on top of my head. But the spirit is little. This is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not saying stand fast in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about stand fast in our spirit. In other words, we need to stand fast having the same spirit. And that thought is continued when he says, with one mind, having the same mind, striving together. Now, interesting, the word for striving together there is the word that we get athletics from. And that gives you a lot of insight, what Paul is talking about here. See if you can help me here. Why in the world would he use the word that we get our word athletics from? When he's talking about what he wants them to do, of being of the same spirit and of the same mind. Standing fast and striving together. Yes, sir. There you go. Teamwork, teamwork. It's all about teamwork. Now, Scott asked me why I had this out over here, but I brought a little visual to make a point. In 1975, I was a junior in high school, and I played football. And um, if you look around, you'll see that ugly guy out there. That's me. But not only did I let her in the sport, but we were the state champions in 1975. Now, I bring it up to brag a little bit, which, you know, that was a long time ago. I couldn't do that now. But my point in this is I played both offensive and defensive tackle. Playing offensive and defensive tackle, I didn't get a lot of praise. I didn't score any touchdowns. I did maybe call some fumbles and recovered some fumbles and whatnot. But on my team, it was the ends, it was the quarterback, it was the running backs who had all the points, who everybody grabbed around, jumped around and patted them on the head when they scored and whatnot. But you know what? They couldn't have done a bit of that without me. Get my big old body in there and help clear the way for them. I think that's what Paul's alluding to here, is understanding that regardless of who we are, regardless of what our job may be, regardless of how important we may feel we're in that job or not in that job, it's all about we're all in this together. We all need to be unified. We all need to be of one mind and of one spirit. Paul wants us to appreciate the fact that church unity is such a very, very important thing. In fact, he goes on and says, it's for, what's the reason for doing this? For the faith of the gospel. How's the gospel and, and, and the, what the, the faith that the church puts out, how's that ever going to survive if we're not unified within the church itself? And once again, he's piggybacking on the fact that let your conversation uh, or let your walk be worthy. Understand the value of what you got. And... Um, you know, I've never understood about, you know, people who are so easily able to leave a church and go do something else or go off to some other place. Um, when the idea is the only way we're ever going to strive together, accomplish what we need to accomplish, is we've got to be unified. It takes teamwork. So I think Paul uh, uses a very good uh, Greek word there, the word that we get our word athletics from. I mean, it's showing us that in a church it takes unity, it takes uh, teamwork. Yes, Jeff. And, and, see, and that's what I love about Paul. He didn't mention it here, but if you think very clearly, what had he just done earlier? There were some preachers who were tearing him down, 
calling him a, a, a man in prison. He, he, he's, he's not everything he says that he is. Paul says, I don't care. As long as the gospel's being preached, I don't care. And that's the whole idea of, of teamwork. You know, I don't care if I'm getting torn down or getting the praise. I want the gospel spread. And that's the main thing. Yes, Jeff. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, of course, this didn't happen to me in high school. It would have been nice if it happened in high school. But I do know that there are some professional quarterbacks that lavish a lot of gifts upon their linemen. Sometimes at the end of the season, they'll buy them a new car or other things because they, they know that if it wasn't for those linemen, uh, they wouldn't be on the front page of Sports Illustrated with a beautiful model underneath their arms. You know what I mean? And making the money that they make. And, of course, the whole point of this is what's, what's best for the overall good? And you keep in mind what is the value of what you've been given, and that is you, you're a part of the church. You're, you're, you're a Christian, and it's not about you. It's about the entire church and about the teamwork that goes along with it. Good point. Anything else? Okay. Well, then he, he moves on to verse 28, and he's still talking about you understand the value of what you have because of the gospel of Christ. And he says in verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. All right. He says, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Uh, the word there, terrified, is the word that's used for uh, horses that are, are, are startled and stampede. They run away. You might have seen that in a movie or not, or you might be in a ranch somewhere, or barn or something. A horse gets spooked by something, and it'll run away, gallop away. And so the admonition he's making is when things happen to you, don't run away. Don't leave the faith. Stay firm. And, of course, they definitely had adversaries. There was adversaries that Paul was dealing with, and there's adversaries that the Philippians were dealing with. But notice what he says about this. The reason why you shouldn't be terrified by your adversaries, and he's talking about any kind of persecution that anybody would put on you. Anytime anybody's mean to you because you are a Christian, he says, which is to them evidence... Evidence that, like in a form of a token, does anybody have anything different from token? Anybody have like badge or sign or anything like that? Some footnote that says sign. All right, proof. This, this, when you keep in mind what he's saying, two things are happening here. When you, as a Christian, you face adversaries, it is proof or evidence, tangible evidence. That first of all, that there's going to be perdition, and that's talking about the people who are hurting you. When you're suffering, it's proof to those of the perdition. Now, that's a little bit hard to understand. How in the world, if somebody is being ugly to you as a Christian, can you prove to them by not being scared that one day they're going to face judgment. Because that's what he's saying. That's what he means here. The evidence of perdition literally means they see in you, 
by you not being scared that they're going to be destroyed. Now, what could a Christian possibly do that somebody would get that impression that was one doing the persecuting? All right, and how would that be reflected? All right, what are you going to say, Michael? All right, okay. And what they see is that you're not just some fly-in-the-pan follower. You're putting up with this, and you're still putting up with it. And in fact, in Paul's day, it didn't happen to us in this country, but in Paul's day, Paul himself was about to be put to death, maybe. But what was he doing while he was about to be put to death? He was still preaching the gospel. He hadn't lost his faith in Christ. And if anybody with any good sense who was a heathen, who was persecuting, would say, there must be something more to this than just somebody's philosophy. And so you have given them evidence that they're going to be destroyed if they don't, get cha- they don't change. But also, the same evidence is different to you because it shows you, proves to you of your salvation and that you're from God. Now, in case we didn't understand that, Paul elaborates a little bit because you say, well, how is my suffering proving that I'm saved and now that it's from God? You know, I can see the other one pretty clearly, but what about that? So he elaborates on it. He says in verse 29, For unto you, the ones who are suffering, it is given in the behalf of Christ. Now, that's a little hard to fathom in the King James, but what he's literally saying is the suffering you're experiencing is a gift from Christ. That's what it literally means. Now, how often when we are struggling with something because of our Christianity, we ever thought, well, that's such a nice gift we got. But that's what the text is saying. He is saying that you need to understand and appreciate the fact that when you do suffer as a Christian, you're getting a gift. Well, wait a minute. Well, why is it a gift? Well, he goes on. It says, so not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, let's take that, and we've got to stop here a minute, but let's take it and divide it in two. How has been, been given the gift of suffering cause us to believe on him? That's the first thing it says it does. Okay? And that, and that grace that you're talking about, we're putting our trust in that grace, right? Okay, that's our faith. That's what it is. All right, Julie, what are you going to say? Okay, well, let's take everything you've said and kind of connect, uh, encapsulate it here. The reason why any kind of struggle or, or adversary we face living the Christian life is a gift is because you never truly know what your faith is until you've been given that gift. And that's why it's a gift. Um, how do you know you, you believe in the grace of God? How do you know that you're... Um, ready to suffer, like you're talking about. How do you know where you really stand in your heart of hearts, what it means to, to under, and he's piggybacking again, on the value of what it means to be a Christian? The only way you'll ever find that out is by suffering. That's the only way the rubber truly meets the road. You can talk about it and think you'll do good, and like I said, we won't ever run into this problem here in this life, but I tell you what, if you're standing before a guy that's about to turn, cut your head off and he says, are you a Christian? And if you say no, he won't cut your head off. You, you know where you stand then. I saw Jeff's hand, I think, and then you're, you're smitting. 
And I hate to cut anybody else off, but it's time to stop. And there's people coming in. But um, suffer for his sake. It's the idea. It's a gift because you're getting to suffer in the same way that your Lord and Savior suffered. And that's an amazing gift. And he finishes verse 30, uh, the chapter saying, uh, you saw this in me at the very beginning when he was in Philippi, and you see it now, or you hear it now while I'm in prison is the idea. But we better stop because they're all wanting to come. Jeremy's already in here. <laughs>